Well, I notice the stars are still on the wall, so take a good look. They'll be gone next Sunday. Uh, every During the course of each year, when people come to faith in Christ, we put a star up on the wall. And so we don't want to rest on last year's stars, so next Sunday you're going to have to look and say, okay, when's the first star going to go up? We are going to, I think, they'll probably put them again on the back wall, so as we, as we walk out, we are reminded of how God has worked. And uh, so, just a little reminder there. Uh, last Sunday, Casey preached and uh, I think gave us a great word for the start of the year. Hopefully you remember it, and that is to be open to the promptings of God's Spirit in 2013 because God is at work as we step out in faith, and He's wanting to work in the lives of people outside of these walls as well as inside these walls. So uh, that was a great word last week as we begin this year. There are different kinds of preaching. Uh, There's biographical preaching where you maybe take the life of David or Moses and and talk about, you know, what what their life was like and how God used them. There is uh, historical preaching. There is textual preaching where you take one text and then you look at other texts in the Bible that support that. There's topical preaching where you pick a topic like marriage or money or family or whatever it might be and you talk through that. And, and then there's a type of preaching called expository. Okay? Not to be confused with suppository. Expository. It's a big word, and it's a kind of preaching that's very unique in that typically in expository preaching, you begin with a book, and you just go through it verse by verse, and you preach what's ever there, and, and you just walk through it in that way. Now, probably the downside of that kind of preaching is that you know, if, if you really get very technical, you can spend a long time. Lloyd-Jones spent 13 years in the book of Romans. And he died in chapter 13. Came to the end of his life. I, I read of a Puritan preacher who spent 24 years preaching through the book of Job. Yeah, oh, <clears throat> that's maybe a little over the top. We're going to spend about probably somewhere in 12 to 15 weeks going through the book of Colossians together. And so I'm going to preach through it in expository fashion. And we're going to jump in this morning. We're just going to get barely introduced to it with the time we have today. And then we're just going to walk through it verse by verse. And I think you'll find it to be a very exciting experience together. So before we start in this book of Colossians, and you'll find it in the New Testament. If you have your Bibles, you might want to turn there. I'm going to talk a little bit about the background, and then we will just barely get into the text today, the first two verses from the book of Colossians. The city is called Colossae. There's a church there. It's located in south-central Turkey, if you know your geography. So envision this, south-central Turkey. And there's, there's three towns that are kind of like tri-cities there. Heropolis, and you probably haven't heard of that. There is Colossae. And then there's a town called Laodicea. How many of you have heard of Laodicea? Okay. Uh, it's referenced by John, and how that really became, although it's referenced here in Colossians too, but 
in, in the book of John, there's a, of the letters to the seven churches, one of those churches is the church of Laodicea. And if you remember the admonition, the Lord said, you know, because you're lukewarm, because you're neither hot nor cold, I, I, I could spit you out of my mouth. And this is a reference to the water in this area. Colossae was located right at the base of the mountains, and they had this cold, crisp, clean water. However, Laodicea was five miles away, and they had to pipe it through a... They had, they had actually irrigation. They had a cistern pipe system, and the water was piped to Colossae. And by the time they it got there, it was kind of a lukewarm, and it had been through these pipes, and it, they weren't known for their water. And so the Lord was saying, you know, you're, the way you're living your life reminds me of that water you guys drink. It's kind of lukewarm. I'd rather you were either cold or I wish you were hot. And so this is the area in which this church uh, was located. It was a market city. Uh, when Paul's writing, it had actually been more prominent, and then the Romans changed the roads. It was about, the Roman Empire is 4,200 miles. That's wider. That's about 1,000 miles wider than the U.S. Huge area. They had over, by the 3rd century, they had over 50,000 miles of road system. And so they switched the roads uh, through Ephesus instead of through Colossae. And, and it, you know how it is when you, you shift the road around the city, it, it changes. And so the city had declined somewhat, but it was a market city. And that's important because there were a lot of different people that came there to market. They were known for their woolen products, and they had this unique dyeing process where they dyed the yarn, and it was a superior process. And so there were a lot of people that went there, and there were a lot of ideas and philosophies and worldviews and all this kind of stuff that was a part of Colossae. It started around 250 B.C., discovered by archaeologists in 1833, and uh, it there were a lot of earthquakes in this area, and it was ultimately destroyed by an earthquake. A little about the church. We don't know a lot about the church, except it appears that Paul had never been there. So Paul didn't start this church. And what most scholars believe is that if you read through the book of Acts, for two years Paul was in Ephesus, which is about 100 miles away. And for two years there he shared the gospel, and it says all the Jews in the area... And all of the people became exposed to the gospel. Philemon was a man that got saved there in Ephesus. Epaphras was a man that got saved in, in most likely in Ephesus. And most people feel that this Epaphras was the guy that started the church in Colossae. He's now the guy visiting Paul, who's writing this book in Rome. And by the way, it's 1,500 miles. That's a nice little walk. 1,500 miles, halfway, almost halfway across the U.S. Ephesus, Epaphras had walked from, from Colossae to Rome to talk to Paul about the church. So there's some pretty important things going on in this church. The message, I'm not going to get that in, into that in depth except to say this. These were new believers. Remember, there was, there was no New Testament. They didn't come to church with their Bibles. They had to rely on, on what they had heard orally. And the few letters, Paul wrote a letter to Ephesus, and that began to circulate around. But there wasn't a lot. And so they were very vulnerable to other ideas and philosophies. And so we, we have this young church being bombarded by all kinds of philosophies. 
And this is a situation to which the book is written. And as we get into it, you're going to understand why it's very relevant to the culture in which you and I live today. And there's going to be a strong, strong focus on the supremacy of Jesus Christ. That he is way, way far and apart on a whole different level than any other kind of philosophy or thought or person that you might put out there as being a source of any kind of salvation at all. So, let's just jump into the text. And chapter 1 of Colossians, it says a letter of Paul. And we're just going to kind of walk through this this morning. Uh, Just take a few minutes here and... I would like to just begin with the first word, Paul. Now, I don't want to assume that everyone here knows who Paul was. Most of us probably do. But Paul was a guy, he was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was a, one of the top guys. In fact, he was in the top position. In, in contemporary culture, he would be like a lawyer with a lot of power. The Jewish system there had the power to put people in prison, and do all kinds of things to people. And so Paul was a Pharisee. His primary goal was to destroy the church. He hated Christians. A good, you know, a good night's sleep for Paul meant he'd put a whole bunch of them in jail during the day. And so here's this Paul. His primary goal in life is to destroy the church. He's on his way to Damascus to take on the Christians there. And the most amazing thing happens. He, is, he has an encounter with Jesus Christ on the, on the road to Damascus that is so profound that in an instant, in, in a moment, this man turns from being the primary destroyer of the church to becoming the, the, the primary builder of the church. An, an incredible transformation that, that you couldn't explain by anything other than a profound encounter with Jesus Christ is what Paul says was the source of the change in his life. So, Paul is writing this. He is what he's, he calls it, an apostle of, of Christ Jesus. The word apostle means a messenger or one who's being sent. So Paul is, is one who's being sent. And notice, he's being sent by the will of God. Paul didn't go into the ministry because his dad was in the ministry. Uh, he didn't go into the ministry because he thought, you know, this would be a nice thing to do. It wasn't that one day he said, you know, I'm getting tired of being so, so mean to these Christians. I think I'll, I'll start to help them. There's only one reason why Paul was doing what he was doing, and that was by the will of God, because it was, the, it was God's will that Paul do this, and that was the only reason why Paul was doing what he was doing, because God had so worked in such a powerful way in his life. Uh, Paul didn't choose God. God chose him. By the way, if you're here today and you're seeking God, I I believe that God looks for a response in us, but but Jesus was very clear when he said, you didn't choose me, I choose you. You're here because God chose you. And that's just an amazing thought to ponder. That had God not chosen you, you would not be here today. And then Paul addresses them. And 
he says, you know, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, who's with Paul there, kind of like a son to Paul, maybe even helping Paul write at times the letters that he wrote. And notice who he addresses it to. To the saints. Now, your Bible may say, to the holy and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. You have NIV, it says, to the holy and faithful brothers. The ESV says, to the saints. Uh, I, I really like the word saints there. But what's interesting is that the word holy and the word saints translate the exact same word. So, what is a saint? A saint is someone that's holy. What does it mean to be holy? It means to be set apart in a special place of blessing. And so we, we see here that, that Paul is addressing them as saints. Now, when people in our day hear the word saints, uh, you know, some people think of, when they hear the word saints, they think of somebody who lived such an exemplary life that they've named a day after this person. And there are certain traditions where there are saints and, and they acknowledge those, you know, Francis of Assisi and other incredible people. For others, the word saint is what we use to describe someone who has a, is just uniquely a kind uh, person. You know, they say, ah, oh, you know, she's just a saint or he's just a saint. For a lot of people, saint is someone who plays football in New Orleans. So we have all kinds of, you know, all kinds of understandings here of the word saint. But for Paul, for Paul, every Christian is a saint. Every Christian is someone who is set apart in a special place of blessing. And so, you know, some of these churches had huge problems. Problems with pride and and. and and immorality and stuff going on, but he always addresses them the same to the saints. It doesn't matter what you're struggling with in your life today, God views you as a saint. That means one set apart in a special place of blessing by God. And so we see here that Paul had a very positive view of people in all of his churches because they were who they were by the grace of God, not because they were struggling with this or because they had something together in this area of their life. They were addressed as saints. And then he says this, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Now, here's where, I mean, I don't know what that sounds like to you, but here's where we might be tempted to just kind of say, okay, you know, he's doing an intro here, Paul an apostle by the will of God. Uh, to the saints and brothers in Colossae, uh, grace and peace to you from God our Father. You know, kind of like saying, have a good day, kind of like a polite greeting here. And, and we would be very tempted to just simply move on and find out what Paul was really saying here in the text. I wonder if Paul said this in any other books. And so you go back and you go, wow, you know, book of Ephesians, verse 2, grace, and, grace to you and peace from God our Father, Lord Jesus Christ. You go to Galatians, and you read in there, verse 3, grace to you and peace from God the Father, our Lord Jesus Christ. You go back, Corinthians, first and second, Romans. You go on, Thessalonians, every single book, the same phrase. Grace and peace to you from God the 
Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So there's two conclusions. You could say, well, that's kind of a polite greeting. But what if this was more than a polite greeting? What if this were two of the most profound things there were that Paul could say? And that's why he said them to begin every letter in the New Testament that he wrote. I mean, maybe it's almost like Paul is saying, you know, up front I'm going to tell you this, grace and peace from God are fine. No matter what else I have to tell you, grace and peace is yours. You may have problems, I may have to confront you, but grace and peace to you from God our Father. It's almost like this is Paul's vision and mission statement. That grace and peace might be manifested upon all who were to read this letter. And maybe Paul's saying, you know, if you don't remember anything else in the letter, remember this. That God is offering you grace and He is offering you peace. So let me just take a couple minutes this morning and uh, I just want to talk about briefly these two things. Grace. Unearned, undeserved favor. Grace. Unearned, undeserved favor. Here's a definition. And I really like this definition. Unconditional acceptance granted to an undeserving person by an unobligated giver. Let me say that one more time. Grace is unconditional acceptance granted to an undeserving person by an unobligated giver. Francis Chan tells the story of his daughter, young daughter who came home with an F from school, which for an Asian home is not acceptable. And so, uh, as a dad, he thought about this, and his daughter was, the thing was out on the table, and she was in her bedroom. She went to the bedroom, knocked at the door, came in, sat down, and uh, you could see the terror on the look of his daughter's face. He said, honey, why don't you get dressed up? She said, oh, okay. She said, how come? She says, because we're going to get dressed up, and we're going to go out to supper, and then I'm going to take you to a movie tonight. Okay, and so she got dressed and uh, said, "You know, I saw your report card on the table, and I so I just wanted to respond to that." She went out, got dressed up, went to a movie, had an incredible time. I came back home, and his daughter was absolutely baffled. He got back, and he said, "Honey, I want to tell you something." So what I did tonight, uh, don't count on this. It'll probably never happen again. But he said, you know, your dad has done, made a lot of mistakes in his life. Your dad has failed a lot of times. And I have a heavenly father who has given me grace in those times. And he said, tonight, the reason I did what I did was because I wanted you to understand what the grace of God means. That when you deserve to be grounded to your room, that when I, as a father, deserve 
the wages of my sin, which is death. That God has given me unconditional acceptance. And I am an undeserving person. And he is in, in no way obligated to do this. A very wise dad seeking to, to teach a lesson early on in the life of his child. So when Paul prays grace to you, you know, he, he's, he's reminding you that you are undeserving, that this is unconditional, that God is in no way obligated. It's, it's a reminder every day, no matter, Paul's saying, no matter what else I have to say here, you need to live in the wonder of God's grace every day. And so that would be one of my challenges to you today, to ask yourself this question. Do you live in the wonder and the thrill of God's grace every day? Because if you don't, then you're missing. You're missing this gift that God has offered to His people. That's why I love Communion Sunday. Because I'm, I'm, I'm reminded again that everything I have is because of what Jesus did through His body and blood. There's nothing else on the table because what Jesus did is sufficient. And that is going to be one of Paul's messages through this book over and over again. Most of us here are still working for God, trying to somehow deserve this, this blessing that he pours out on our lives. And, and I, have, I have advice for you today, and that is just give it up. Because you will never deserve it. In fact, the more mature you get in the faith, there's just a little something that you maybe many of you have discovered this, but some of you haven't yet. That the more you mature in the faith, you know, you would think that as you mature, you would feel like you're a little more deserving of what God is doing. The opposite is true. The more you mature, you know, you might improve a little bit. But the more you mature, the more you begin to grasp the depth of God's grace and you just become more, not less, overwhelmed by how undeserving and how gracious God is to you. And so God is just, is just looking for a heart of gratitude. And, and Paul was an incredible worker, but he makes it very clear time and time again, it is the love of God that compels me. Paul was a driven man, but he was driven by the grace of God. He was not driven to, to receive the grace of God. He was driven out of the grace of God. And so early on here, Paul says, grace to you from God. This is a gift to you from God. Grace. And then he says, peace. Peace means to join. It literally means when you're at peace, you are joined together. It means it has a sense of things being settled. And one of the beautiful pictures of peace is that you're apart from God and there's this longing, this unsettledness in your heart. And when you're at peace, it all comes together. And you come together with God and, and this distance is removed. Grace is the root of the gospel. Peace is the fruit of the gospel. So the fruit of, of receiving God's grace is the peace that comes into your life. And you'll never experience peace if you don't open your heart up to God's grace. Here's another definition. Peace is what happens in your mind, your emotions, and heart 
when you realize that you are fully accepted and firmly held in the arms of God. Peace is what happens in your mind, emotions, and heart when you realize you are fully accepted and firmly held in the arms of God, no matter what's going on in your life. There was a man by the name of Joseph, and he, the night before his wedding, 23-year-old bride, she and he went horseback riding. She was thrown from the horse, landed in a river, a stream, was unconscious. By the time he could get her out, she had died. Just imagine that. He moved from Dublin, where he lived, to Ontario, and he began tutoring for a a gentleman, and there he fell in love with the gentleman's niece. The months before they were married, she became ill with pneumonia, and he began to take care of her, and she died under his care. And, and this had an, obviously an incredible effect on this man, and, and he just, you know, you either become bitter or better, and he, he was able to to become better, and he became a man known in that community. In fact, there's a monument there to his memory today. And he was a man who had helped the poor, the widowed, the orphan, anyone who couldn't afford help. He lived out the rest of his days helping people. And he wrote a song, and it, was, it, it had no title to it for 10 years. For 10 years. And one day someone confronted him. They said, Joseph, did you write that song? He said, well... God and I wrote that song. That song is one of the best, in fact, it is the best-known hymn in the history of all hymnology. Joseph Scrivener wrote, What a friend we have in Jesus. What a friend. What a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. And then he writes this, he says, Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. And, and you begin to realize that over the course of these incredible tragedies in this man's life, that... You know, he, he had allowed those tragedies to, to move into the very presence of God in an extremely, extremely profound way. And he had discovered the peace of God in this, in this friendship with God. And so we have these two incredible gifts, grace and peace, that God offers all of his saints, all who believed in him through the gospel. And, you know, there's a grace out there that God offers to everyone. You know, everyone, the sun came up for everyone this morning. People all over, you know, got together with families. That, that's all God's grace upon all people. And there's peace out there. You know, if it was a good day, there are many people, it was a good Christmas, they're, they're at peace in their mind. There's that level of peace. But what Paul's talking about here when he says grace and peace goes way, way beyond that. This is a grace and peace that passes all understanding. You know, this is a grace that, that circumvents even death itself. This is an experience of, of grace and peace that is 
profound. And as Paul begins this book, let's, let's not just jump over these gifts and get into the meat of what Paul's really saying. Let's remember that no matter what's going on in our lives, these are two priceless gifts that God is offering you every single day that you live. Grace and His peace. Father, this morning we thank You for these two gifts that You've given us. And Lord, we confess that for many of us we gloss over them. We don't live in the wonder of Your grace every day. We don't We don't see ourselves as fully accepted through Jesus Christ. We think we have to arrive at some point before we can really enjoy that. So Lord, we come against that lie today and we we accept this truth, this unearned, unconditional love and favor that You've given us even though You were in no way obligated to us. And then, Father, the peace that passes all understanding. Father, we would pray that that would be the experience of every person here. And Lord, we know the only way for peace with you is through faith in Christ and through receiving you into our lives and inviting you and your spirit to come in and bring about that gift of peace in our lives. So, Lord, as we move into our communion time, Father, we just praise and worship you for your great love for us today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.